Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is John Burke. John began working in the warehouse of Trek Bicycle, founded by his father in 1984, and has held a variety of positions before becoming president of the company in 1997. Under John's leadership, Trek has become a global business and one of the world's most popular bicycle brands. John also has considered running for president and in anticipation of that possibility, wrote a book, Presidential Playbook 2020, 16 Nonpartisan Solutions to Save America. It's a fantastic book, and we had a great conversation about it, really apropos for election season. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you John Burke. John, welcome to the podcast. Scott, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, you have written a book called Playbook 20, Presidential Playbook 2020, 16 Nonpartisan Solutions to Save America. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of people, or at least a slither of people, in the country at some point have daydreamed about becoming president or thought they yep. could become president. You and people outside of the political process, people that are, you know, in, in private life or university professors, you actually wrote a book that laid out your whole agenda and decided not to run. Yeah. Is that a heartbreaking thing when you look at this thing and you're like, Oh my gosh, what if this was my contract with America? I mean, is it, is it, I mean, it's, cause it's a fantastic book as a reader, but I'm wondering as the author, you're thinking I had this goal in mind of this kind of Howard Schultz or sort of independent kind of uh, business pragmatic presidency. And is it a bummer that you, you didn't run? You know, um, I'll tell you the way I look at it is my son graduated from college I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And I went to the graduation and David McCullough, the great American historian, was the speaker. And he looked out over the graduates at the end and he said, at some point, do something for your country. And I thought about that on my ride home. And I thought, what could I do for my country? And I have some real opinions that our government and our leaders are falling short of the legacy that we've been given and that we are not handing a better country off to our children. And so I figured I'd write a book and I wrote a book in uh, 20 came out in 2016. It was called 12 simple solutions to save America. And the election of 2016 came and it went and I thought, here we go again. No one with a plan to run the country. It's just political theater. And what this country really needs is progress on the biggest issues of the day. So I said, listen, I'm going to write a book and if nobody competent, if nobody competent runs for the presidency and has a plan, I'll do it. It's not my first choice. I love running the bike company. But if nobody else is going to have a plan for our country, then I'll do it. And so I wrote the book as if I was going to run for president. And I kept that option open. And if I was going to run, I would give people my book and I would say, this is my plan. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have as a country is we have all these people running for president and nobody ever has a plan. So I was going to fix that. Aren't you banking a lot, though, on the initiative of the American voter to actually show up and pay attention? I mean, to give somebody a book, 
I mean, people spend all day distilling policy ideas and political strategies into tweets and slogans. Yeah. So, I mean, were you, were you looking for the, the nerd bicycle riding vote or what? Like, yeah, <laughs> like how many people do you would think would read the book? Well, you know, here, here's the thing is that that's what everybody told me. They said people don't care about the issues. Nobody's going to read it. And nobody cares. And I thought, I'm an optimist. I actually, I actually think people do care. I think people care about the healthcare system. And I think people do care about the environment. And I think people do care about our foreign policy because it affects them every single day. But I don't think any presidential candidate has treated the voters like adults. I think they all treat them like kids. And that's it's a circus. And maybe if somebody stood up and said, time out. If we want to be a great nation, we actually have to discuss these challenges that we have, and we need to have a simple, clear plan. And people wonder why there's so much friction in this country. And I really believe that the majority of it is because people don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the facts. And so we devolve into this tribal warfare when neither side really knows what they're talking about. It's really sad. As I was reading the book, I called several friends uh, and I said, this is a really exciting book. Like, I, I want to tell you about it because I thought I love your policy prescriptions. And I think you they're not they're simple, but not shallow. Uh, but you, you claim early in the book that you run as an independent and you talk about the problem with the two party system. And you note how the 2019 Gallup poll shows that 20%, 26% of Americans identified themselves as Republicans, 29% Democrats and 43% is independent. But newer polling has found out that really that 43% are kind of fall independents. Like they say they're independent, but generally they're pretty predictable voters in one party or the other. Like right. And so so they're a lot of people say they're independent, but if you look at their voting record, they're generally independent that vote Republican or independent that vote Democrat. So I mean that I mean that's one of the things that as I was reading, and I want to get into more of the specific policy prescriptions because they're fascinating and really well articulated. And thought through, but one of my things, as I was reading, is—is is this just um, uh, quixotic? I mean, is this Don Quixote tipping at windmills, thinking that that an independent, like, w w is for as much entrenchment as the two-party system has, right? It, which even on getting on ballots and things like that, like, I mean, how how does an independent mount a serious challenge in contemporary America? Well, I think I think all the points you bring up are fair, and they're um, they're correct. The only challenge I would have to that is I don't think we have had an independent candidate or any candidate run for the presidency in recent memory with an actual plan. And that was my hope is that I would go out and I would run with an actual plan. And I wasn't going to say that I was going to win. I would say if I won, I could do the job. I'm, I'm certain of that. But I wasn't certain that I could win. I knew it would be an uphill fight. But if I lost and there was a high probability that I would lose, I believe that I would have educated a lot of Americans along the way and the country would have been better off for it. So do you think like just even I mean, I look at Bernie Sanders, right? Like Bernie yeah. Sanders is a guy that has changed the American political conversation with just even like with things like Medicare for all. Right. That was not something, you know, that. I mean, Obama, just an election cycle, wasn't running on that. I mean, most Democrats wouldn't have run on that. And no. now it became a live issue. So, I mean, is what you're saying is that if you could mount a campaign, even if you didn't win, but be, got enough attention, enough 
electricity, if you get some lightning in a bottle, that you know MSNBC and Fox are going to have to deal with your issues, and and the voters are going to have to go expose them, and maybe you could move the debate in a more substantive direction. I think that's part of it. Is that that would happen, and I really believe that you know you talk about Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. You know, when you ask Bernie Sanders how are you going to pay for it, he didn't have a really good answer on that. And when you take a look at my plan for America, it's not one issue, it's 16. And when you take a look at the solutions, all the solutions are simple, practical solutions. The difference with my solutions is there's a lot of sacrifice involved. And if you take a look at building a great company or building a great sports team or building a great nonprofit, they all require hard work and sacrifice. And what our political leaders have told the citizens is vote for me because you won't have to do anything and there will be no sacrifice involved. In fact, I will cut your taxes and I will expect nothing of you. And together we're going to build a great country. Nonsense. That, that's not the way it works. It's The way it works is that if you want to build something great, you need to take on challenges. And typically, if a challenge is involved, it requires hard work, sacrifice, and effort. And I think that's what we've gotten away from in this country. And I think the beauty of my book is it's not one issue. There's 16, and they're not all leaning to the left or leaning to the right. There's some issues where I'm where people would say, oh, you're way to the left. And there's some issues that people would say, you're way to the right. But I would challenge anyone on any one of those 16 issues. Yeah, I think when it, so, I, I mean, I could just pick out, again, if you ran, I would I would come join your campaign because I love the book. <laughs> but I, so one of the things I think I, that, that struck me as really compelling is you say the greatest nuclear threat today is not the Russians, but terrorists, right? And I've thought this for years that it's the Russians aren't going to nuke us. We're not going to nuke them. We're not going to nuke China. China's not going to nuke us. What's going to happen is a dirty bomb goes off in, in a nuclear suitcase bomb in New York or L.A. And then we lose our democracy. Right. Because if people choose between security and liberty, they'll always choose security. And we just become a sort of uh, uh, that to me is, is the non-state actors are the big threats. And you, you talk about things like reducing the nuclear stockpile from like 4,000 to 300. And you talk about really aggressive anti-proliferation policies, which, I mean, again, I've just never heard anything like this in a presidential debate where somebody says, hey, let's, um, let's decrease our nuclear stockpile and increase a kind of certain kind of war on terror, not a kind of just blind, you know, we're going to drop drone bombs everywhere, but more like, look, let's get a handle on, on proliferation of nuclear material because that's the real threat, right? It's not the silos in Russia or China. It's, it's the non-state actors, right? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think, first of all, I think it's a huge issue is the amount of nuclear weapons that are all over the world. And, you know, there's somebody who wrote a theory and the theory said is that all weapons get used. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Wright brothers thought that the airplane was going to put an end to wars because nobody would ever use airplanes for, for war. Or the guy who came up with the submachine gun thought it would make war obsolete because nobody would be as inhumane to use that against another person. And so weapons, in the end, always end up getting used. And if you don't think so, you're you're nuts. And so I take a look at nuclear weapons in our country over the next 10 years. We're planning on spending $494 billion to upgrade our nuclear arsenal. Now, if I put that to a vote, I don't think you'd get many people who would sign up for that. And so I say, you know what? The, one of the greatest threats we have is a terrorist gets a hold of nuclear weapons or there's an accident. 
There have been numerous nuclear accidents over the years, and I detail it in the book. And if you don't think that there could be a nuclear accident, you probably didn't think there would be a global pandemic that could bring the economy of the United States to its knees. And these are the kind of issues that we don't talk about in presidential campaigns. Do do, do you have the same anxiety about nuclear power plants as you do about weapons? No, I have a greater anxiety about nuclear weapons way greater anxiety because i had a guest on the podcast a couple years ago he's he was a liberal guy guy that was a man of the left international affairs expert and was passionate about climate change and going into the research he was anti-nuclear power and at the end of the research he was pro-nuclear power because he looked at like france and sweden like sweden basically has zero carbon footprint and they do it with nuclear and renewables right and and nuclear energy is a lot safer these days than than it used to be i mean so, so you're also a guy that is passionate about climate change. I mean, you, you kind of, you, you, and this is the issue of issues, right? Because it's, if we don't have a planet, doesn't matter. none of the issues that matter it anymore. Matter. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, okay, okay, let's talk about climate change just, just for, for a minute. And I take a look at climate change. And to me, the, the, the statistic that just jumps out is in the last 120 years, the temperature on our planet, the only planet we have, is up two degrees. And if you're in Wisconsin, you're like, I wish it was five. Joke. <laughs> two degrees doesn't sound like a lot. Right. But if your temperature is 98.6, if I put your temperature up to 100, 100.6, how do you feel? Yeah. You're sick. Yeah. Our planet is two degrees warmer and it's sick. And if you take a look at the trend line right now, you have scientists saying 100 years from now, it could increase another six degrees. The human race is done at plus six degrees. I mean, I remember Admiral Mullen, who was the chair of the Joint Chiefs for well under Obama, in a congressional hearing, they asked him, what's the biggest threat to national security? And he said, climate change. And he said, it's because like, you know, you'll have ice caps melting, you'll have more severe weather, you'll have more refugees, you have more terrorists floating in with refugees. He's just like the chaos that that's being caused from increased climate fluctuation and, and change and, and warming of the earth. He's like, that's our biggest national security threat. It, it is. And, and let me explain this to you this way. If you take a look at COVID-19, there's a great analogy of if you take a boiling pot of water and you put a frog in the boiling pot of water, the frog immediately identifies that he could die and he jumps out. And that's where society is today with COVID-19. They see it as a boiling pot of water. And so we're all trying to do something about it immediately. If you take a look at climate change, it's like the boiling pot of water that starts out at room temperature. You put the frog in and you crank it up one degree a minute. And the frog assimilates to to the temperature. He gets used to the temperature and he just sits in there and he boils to death. He doesn't move. And that's what's happening to us. We keep cranking the temperature up and okay, there's forest fires in California, and there were three 500-year floods in Houston in a five-year span, and Australia was on fire for three months last year. And there's all this stuff happening, and we just keep ticking it up one degree at a time. And we don't have leadership in this country who's saying, time out, we've got a problem. And we go and we talk to the people. There are solutions to this. To every single challenge this country has, there is a solution that is right there. And it involves sacrifice, hard work. And when you put that in, you can build an amazing country. We can be, at one point in time, we were the leaders of the free world, not just based on military might, but based on the competency 
of our government and based on the will of our citizens. And it's my belief that because of a lack of leadership, we have lost that. And we need to get that back for our own good and for the good of the rest of the world. You the have, world needs a leader. You have a really good I, – I, I'm pretty impressed with your health care plan. So basically – you you did what a lot of people talked about in your plan in a very simple way. I mean, basically, people have talked about a public option where we'd kind of have a kind of, you call it Medicare 2.0, where basically you'd have a choice as a citizen uh, between keeping private insurance yep. or or going on Medicare 2.0. And you have two tracks if you're relatively healthy. And both are inexpensive. I mean, I mean if you're unhealthy... You're still saving money over the over your average private insurance company, but you have a, 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 a the thing about the plan that I appreciate is it's a pretty simple and elegant plan as opposed to you know you point you point out in the book that I think there's three different medical coding classifications for getting bit by a parrot under Obamacare. I mean, like it, so you're kind of you're offering a, a, what. Most um, liberals have been asking for um, like a competitive option, a public option, and yet you're not booting private insurance out of the market. I mean, you're letting a kind of dynamic competition go on, and and, and you have almost a dynamic kind of public policy experiment you're proposing. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is amazing is people say, oh, you can't do that because you're going to socialize medicine and we're going to become a socialist country. It's like there's 130 million people today on Medicare and Medicaid. That's social. That's socialized medicine. And to me, I just take a look at let's just look at the basic facts. We spend the most money in the world on our health care, almost twice as much of GDP as any other country in the world. And we get the worst results. Year in and year out, we are dead last. Okay, so it would be like the sports team. Let's take the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA, and we're all the owners because we we own the team, and the Bucks outspend every other NBA team two to one for 20 years, and every year they get dead last, and they make no changes. That's the United States with healthcare. And my point is, you got to change the game And we let these companies continue to make political donations to politicians to keep the same crooked game the same. And everybody loses. And I come up with a really simple plan to significantly increase the health of the American people and to slash the cost and to provide health care for everyone. Let's go. Let's go. It's interesting because you point something out that makes sense to everybody, right? Oh my gosh, we spend all this money uh, and we get bad results. We want to spend a lot of money and get good results. But you point out in your campaign finance reform chapter that Congress knows if you spend a lot of money, you get good results, right? Because like I think it's eighty-two percent of the people that win just win because they spend the most money. Like 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 more than three out of four times. It more, doesn't matter what party you're in. If just you raise the most amount if, of money, if you spend the most money in the campaign, you're going to win. Yeah, I mean Trump is the rare is one of the rare exceptions to this, right? Because Hillary outspent him, and probably if she'd had a better if she'd had better campaign strategists and was more judicious with that money, she might have won. But she, but that's the rare example. And most of the time, if you've got the war chest, you win the election. You win the election. But then, but the worst part is, once you're elected, you have to pay all those people back. Yeah. So if you're in some of these Senate races, you have a U.S. Senate seat. They're selling for $60, $80 million apiece. So your first day in office, the healthcare company calls up and says, listen, Tommy, 
I need you to do this and this. And this is a person who donated a million dollars to their political action committee. They get a phone call back right away and they're going to do it. You have people who are making the policy for this country on health care and their biggest supporters are the insurance companies. Is that what the, is that, is that Eisenhower, somebody once said to Eisenhower, they said, you know, that's a tough job being president. How do you, how do you make decisions? He goes, you know, it's really not that hard. He goes, I asked myself one simple question. What's in the best interest of the American people? And at Trek, we have something called the Eisenhower rule. If, if you're ever kind of wondering what the, be, what the right call is, what's in the best long-term interest of the bicycle company? And make that decision. There we was a, not do that with healthcare. There was a great line in the show, The West Wing, um, <laughs> where, where Alan, Alan, Alan Alda, who's running for president, is a, is a Republican senator. Um, they're, they're, his campaign person says, well, don't irritate the drug lobby too much. And he says, look, if you can't take their money, eat their food and drink their booze and then vote against them, you don't belong in this business. <laughs> <laughs> And there, and there's something to that, but but I mean, but re- realistically, right? I mean, the point you make is the center of gravity. The pull is so strong, and so if you want to get and and look, I I assume most people that want to run for office, uh, the the majority of people go in with certain ideals, right? Whether you're right, left, center, whatever, you have some ideals, but then to play the game, right? It takes so much. It's it's like all the Democrats that complain about. Um, Republican takes on campaign finance, then play the game because you don't want to bring um, a knife to a gunfight, right? Yep. And so, so you're arguing you have to change the fighting rules. So it's 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 you a little more like it's like dueling muskets as opposed to MMA. Yeah, and you got you got you need to you need to change the game, and that's you know that's what the book's about is you know here are solutions that other people are not proposing that could significantly change the course of the country, and they don't get talked about. I mean, we've we've just witnessed what have we been at it a year and a half, eighteen months of a presidential campaign, and most of the things that are in this book on major issues never discussed. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I mean, so as I'm reading it again, I'm reading it pretty sympathetically because. I, I think on most of the issues, I, I'm with you. And again, I, the elegance and simplicity of your solutions on things like criminal justice and and, oh. and and tax reform are so compelling. But a lot of your agenda depends on things like um, constitutional amendments, which are which require at a tribal time. It re- I mean, it's hard to get the American people to agree on anything. Even COVID, if you're in a red state, like right, you tend to have COVID deniers. If you're in a blue state, I mean, you're in Wisconsin, right? I mean, it's interesting. Just you guys are getting slammed by it. Like, I mean, it, 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 where people have made even, even a public health issue partisan. How would you, I mean, how realistically on day one, let's say you're elected president. Yep. How the heck do you get a constitutional amendment passed when, again, Trump couldn't get with a Republican Congress with, 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 you know, for two years, he kind of had what Obama had, right? Like he had both houses. Uh, of the legislature, and he couldn't even get his wall built, right, or get a full Obamacare repeal. Well, he was going to have Mexico pay for that. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. But I mean, how, how, like, so I mean, you're going to ratchet up the game to do things yeah. like pass constitutional amendments, which are these require like all like two thirds of the states, and then and then um, uh, majorities in Congress. Wait, wait, don't constitutional amendments require super majorities in Congress as well? It requires a lot. That's a it's a serious thing to do. And you know, if you take a look, I think you know a couple of the points in the book require 
require a um, constitutional amendment. Term limits would require a constitutional amendment. But 95% of the book, you don't need a constitutional amendment. And I think one of the biggest problems we have is campaigns that are filled with money and people talk about nothing. So we don't take on any of the serious issues. And then people get elected. And what did they get elected on? They didn't have a plan. I mean, if you really get into what what plan does Donald Trump have for the second term? Do you know what his plan is? It's to make this place the most beautiful, powerful country. It's going to be so beautiful. We're going to be tired of winning. I've never seen a person that uses more adverbs than Donald right. Trump. I'm like, okay, dude, so dude, I, this, this man, this man is the most powerful man in the world. He is the president of the United States and he has no plan. And he's running against Joe Biden. And I'm fairly well educated. I read quite a bit. And I really can't tell you what Joe Biden's priorities will be as president. I I can't tell you. I can tell you all the problems he sees with Donald Trump and why Donald Trump's not qualified. And I can tell you that Donald Trump will tell me that Joe's sleepy. That's what kind of a campaign we're having in America. And I believe that there's an opportunity to rise above that and actually have an adult conversation with the American people on what we need to do together to move the country forward. Yeah, I think that that's a it's a it's a and no one's ever tried. It's a point well made. I mean, I think like I I look at Biden and uh, who I'm sympathetic to. And I was looking, a friend of mine asked me about his fracking policy. And I was saying, well, it's kind of like, I mean, he, he's like, I, I, well, I'm not going to have new fracking land grants, but we'll have fracking. We'll still let fracking happen. And well, this, I mean, you know, just because because uh, my friends were asking me, well, where is he at with the Green New Deal? And they were actually critical of Biden. And I said, well, I mean, he, he clearly said, I'm, I'm not for the Green New Deal. I'm for the Biden plan. But then when you ask him about specifics, it gets hard for him to say, um, what he's going to do specifically on the environment. And, and now, I mean, it's clear that um, he will take a different approach to most Republicans. Like in general, Republicans, Republicans are going to be anti-regulation. They're going to kind of um, have the EPA loosen restrictions, but there's not a clear like, and the Democrats are going to promise we're not going to do that. But you're right. There's not a ton of specifics put out there. No. Nobody and people don't treat Americans like adults. And who is the guy who came up with the national parks? There's a Republican. Right. Roosevelt. Roosevelt. And who is the guy who founded the EPA, the Environmental Protection? Nixon, yeah. It was Richard Nixon, a Republican, a good friend of mine, David Kohler, read my book and he goes, you know, I'm a lifelong Republican. I read your book and I agree with every single point in there. He goes, if you get a group of smart people in a room and you lay out all the facts, 90% of the time they'll come to the same conclusion. But we have all this money in politics and people are more interested in who gets elected than they are in moving the country forward and doing the people's work. And how do you how do you change that narrative, change the game? Because I mean, I think on to two levels. A, like, ju- let's just take money in politics. Yeah, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of Citizens United, and and you right. know, so we have this kind of like. So again, we would need a constitutional amendment, which again is incredibly difficult to get. So then, like, just on that issue, like, take take two issues, okay, on your first commitment to like because i agree with you if you got rid of if you reformed money in politics it's the way to reform all the other issues right i mean because you'd have a balanced playing field and special interests would be hobbled and you can actually get a debate going but the second thing is 
the tribalism where people, I mean, people, I think these days, let the, the, their political identity, their political ideology does their identity work, right? So their identity isn't as much in being a parent or a Christian or a Jew or a volunteer or a friend. <laughs> it's in, you know, a Republican or Democrat. So many people are so tribal. So how do you get the cultural revolution? Because you can't legislate that, right? You'd, you'd have to get people to get beyond their tribe and actually uh, like have politics not be a zero sum game. Yeah, and I, I think there's a, I think there's a couple of ways to do it. I think one of the ways there's a lot of things in the book that you can. I agree with you. If you get money out of politics, you're going to solve a lot of other problems. It's a hard one, but that can be done. But nobody is out there. I don't know if you if you went through the presidential campaign that just lasted a year and a half. How much discussion did you hear about getting money out of politics? <laughs> Not a lot. By the way, there's a, there's a great quote in your book. Um, you're quoting Robert uh, McChesney uh, at the University of Illinois. And I had never realized this. Is It just, I mean, this is, I mean, there's so much gold in this book. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you quote him saying, the number one lobby that opposes campaign finance reform <laughs> in the United States is the National <laughs> Association of Broadcasters. Because <laughs> ABC News or NBC right. or MSNBC or CNN or Fox, they love it because it brings money it. in the ad coffers. Right. I think in the True. UK, I think this is right. In the UK, elections last like six weeks and television right. ads are illegal. <laughs> there you go. I mean, it's like all this stuff can be changed. I don't, all this mo money, we're not getting better candidates for the more money we spend. We're getting worse candidates. So where's the leadership to stand up and say, this needs to end? Somebody needs to have an adult conversation with the American people. That's what this book is. And I really believe that, you know, whoever the president, the next president of the United States is, should have that conversation with the American people and they should propose laws. And maybe the law doesn't pass, but it's a start. And you keep pounding away and you keep pounding away and you start talking to people and then all of a sudden it happens. But yeah. let's start. I mean, I wonder, I mean, the challenge, I think, right, like in, in, a difference, I think, between the private sector and the public sector, right? Like you've been incredibly successful in the private sector with Trek bikes. I mean, I mean, over a billion dollars in revenues. I mean, this is a world-class company by any standards. But my guess is if you can sell your board and you can sell everybody that, that this idea is going to make money, right? And that this bike, like like this direction is going to profit the company. I mean, they're going to go with it. I mean, it's it's just convincing them that it's going to put more money in the black and, and not going to take us in the red. But I, I feel like when you're in government, you have whole swaths of people that are like, well, I don't care because my constituents, I've got to get reelected. And even though that might be good for, for instance, it's, it's, I'll tell you, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me is ethanol policy, right? Ethanol is the worst environmental policy, right? If if Iowa didn't go first, uh, right. if, if the Iowa caucuses weren't first and yeah. every senator, you know, didn't think, well, maybe I'll run for president someday. I can't be against ethanol because that's the big corn state, right? So like, I mean, again, any reasonable person, any reasonable person, if you put ethanol policy on the table with a 20 minute intelligent presentation would realize it's bad for the environment. It's not great for the country, but because Iowa goes first and we have this like establishment system, well, we're just stuck with ethanol policy. And I wonder like how many roadblocks are, are there like that in the country where sensible solutions just die on the vine because of the way different political interest groups work. There's quite a few, but if you, if you start hacking away and you start taking them one by one, and if you could get some sensible policy in healthcare, then maybe that would get you some sensible policy on the military budget 
And then maybe that could get you to some sensible policy with government unions. And that could lead to some sensible policy with the amount of people that we have locked up in prison. There's the beauty of where we are with America right now is we have so many challenges. I mean, it's a target rich environment. Somebody's going to be a hero here. Do you think if you were to run, I mean, or, or and let's say even if you, let's say you not even running, let's say you became president. I mean, would the strategy to be, be to just go around and do like a zillion town halls. I mean, just ha- make the media cover conversations with normal people, unscripted conversations with normal people, because it seems yeah. like that's the only hope that if you could yeah. get normal Americans, yeah, like th- that that were not um, radically ideological, or maybe maybe they are because people were getting more ideological, but they're at, but they're still critical thinkers. If you could just go sit down in diners in church fellowship halls in the Elks Lodges, in the high school gymnasiums across the country, like it, like instead of what Trump's doing and having rallies, if if you could run around and just embarrassing. listen to people's stories and, and, and dialogue about your solutions, do you think that would break the long jam? I think that would help. You know, I have in my office, I have two massive whiteboards. And I used to think I was odd. And I really need whiteboards because I love to listen to people. I'll outline what the problem is or what challenge we're facing. And then I'll get, I'll put the smartest people in the room. And then I want everybody's opinion. And I write it up on the board. And it's a way of me putting all the cards out on the table. Like here are all the ideas. It's also a way for it to get into my head. And it's a way for me to let people know I'm listening to you. I care. And if I was the president of the United States and I wanted to get these 16 things done, I think you're absolutely right. I would go town to town with a big whiteboard and a bunch of markers and I would lay out the problem and I would get everybody's input and we'd work through it. And I think that's one of the ways you could really highlight the biggest challenge that we need that we that we have here is to educate the voters. And what our current candidates are doing is they're dumbing them down. We're going the opposite direction. So you've written a pretty what I what I think is a pretty good book. And again, it's something that like I'm I'm pretty excited to talk with friends about. I mean, why not run for office? Why not run for governor or or like state senator or something so that you could you'd have a platform in public life to talk about these issues, to go whiteboard with people? You know, because right now I have um, the greatest job in the world. And I love, this has been my life's work. I've worked at Trek for 37 years. We've got an amazing team here. We've done some great things. We got a lot of work to do. The only job that I would do was would be would be the president. That's the only job that would interest me. And those are the issues that interest me. State issues, not for me. State senator, not for me. The issues that interest me are the big issues, the big monster issues that everybody throws in the closet. I want to open that door up. I want to trot out the monsters and I want to take care of them. If I was going to run for anything, I'd run for the presidency. So what about 2024? If 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 we get through the next four years and if nobody has a plan, then I'll run in 2024. And I'm not going to ask anyone. I'm just going to do it. But I mean, it's interesting because I, I think someone like Joe Biden, I think, who's kind of on the moderate end of the Democratic Party, a lot of these issues, a lot of the way you frame the issues wouldn't seem to be opposed to because he's a guy like you that believes in the free market. Right. I mean, he's he, I mean, the Obama administration, you know, 
we created a lot of jobs. There were there were, you know the stock market went up. I mean they weren't these kind of like sometimes the right frames them like they were they were Che Guerrero <laughs> communist. I mean they were pretty Wall Street. I mean you can't be a Che Guerrero communist if Wall Street likes you that much, right? Like right. um I mean how, what what about just like getting I mean because you've got great ideas here and, and one of the things that's interesting to me about your book is not only do I find the ideas compelling, you communicate them well. Like your Medicare your Medicare 2.0 chart is a thing of beauty. It's so simple. It's so basic. Um, like, why not? Do you have plans to like try to influence policy? Like, let's say Biden wins. Would you? Do you have connections where you could be like, hey, what if we kind of nudged the public conversation in this direction? So you know, um, one of the things I, I do want to say is the book was written. To be simple, and if you go back, one of one of the great business people of the last hundred years was Steve Jobs, and somebody asked him, "How do you how do you explain all of Apple's success?" And he goes, "One word: simplicity. Everything we've done here at Apple, from product to marketing to the way we run the business, is all based on simplicity, and that's the way I that's the way I work at Trek." And that's the way I wrote the book is that's the kind of stuff you can get done is simplicity. And we do the exact opposite in government is we do we make everything complicated. But I think when you talk about Joe Biden, you know, if if Joe Biden wins, he's going to have an amazing opportunity to put his stamp on the future of this country or he's going to just kick the can down the road and you know, Donald Trump will have the same. He'll have if he wins, he's going to have the same thing. He he's going to have an amazing opportunity, or he's going to kick the can down the road again, and we'll find out. But you know, one of the things I've tried to do with the book, I've sent out, you know, handwritten notes to over a thousand people around the country, including Joe Biden and Donald Trump. You know, I'll continue to send send the book out to people, and you know, hopefully somebody will read it. And you never know who's going to read it, and you never know where it's going to make a difference. Who has responded? Have people responded to those notes? Oh, I get a couple. I get a couple. I get a couple notes in. But who, you know, like, no, like who, like any prominent person that most listeners would know that responded and gave. Okay, you some- I think of. I think a funny one is uh, the golfer Gary Player. Oh wow! And so I put in. I put in the book Gary Player from South Africa, who's won you know the Masters a couple of times. Famous golfer, and he's like eighty five, and he looks like he's forty five. And he's just a health and fitness nut. And he wrote this article where he just ranted about America being fat, overweight, um, just eating ourselves to death. Yeah. And he's right. And I put that in there and I, and I got a note back. Um, I knew somebody who knew Gary Player, so I sent him the book and he absolutely loved it. But, you know, whoever reads the book gets a lot out of the book. So. It's funny because the, the cast from the West Wing is doing a reunion like on HBO, a one act. So they're redoing an episode on stage like a play. Oh, cool. And, and uh, they they were on uh, they were on Stephen Colbert, several of the casts. And they talked about, um, oh, shoot, who is it? Richard Schiff, the actor that played Toby Ziegler, talked about one time he got a letter. They would get all these letters from people. Yeah. And he said, one time I got a letter after our Social Security episode. I loved your episode. Uh, but here's all the reasons your social security plan wouldn't work. And it was signed Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you get some of those letters, but I mean, so, so what's next for you and, and in, in kind of, you've written the book, you're doing your life's work. I mean, do you, are you supporting a candidate this 
time around? Are there are there local candidates you're excited about? I mean, who who are you voting for? Well, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm taking a look at that, and uh, you know, I like to focus on the issues here and not get off into that. But um, I'll write. I put out a blog every couple of weeks, and I think I'll write one on that coming up here. But I mean, you got. I mean, look. I mean, realistically, uh, I mean, you're. I think you'd get a better hearing. Well, maybe not. Though. I'm thinking. I mean, my initial thought is you get a better hearing among Democrats, at least moderate to center left Democrats. Then, I mean, there just aren't that many moderate Republicans left, right? I mean, you know, th- I, I think that you know, I, I'll tell you, I sent my um, my brother-in-law's father is a huge Trumpster, and he got this book and he read the book three times. Wow, loved the book. Wow. Anybody who reads that book really enjoys the book. It gets them out of their tribe and it gives them the facts for every one of the 16 challenges. I started out with here are the facts and then here are the solutions. I want to make sure everybody understands the facts. And I didn't cherry pick the facts. I just laid it all out. And I think we're underestimating. um, I think deep down. People are good, and deep down, people are Americans first, party second. But I think in this tribal atmosphere, we've we've done a reversal, and there are more people who care about their parties than they do about the country. And that's the wrong spot to be in. And if you read my book, you know, wouldn't you rather have an open mind? I, I, I would, but I, but just I would. Just as a person. I, if somebody asks you a question, and they go, would you rather be an open-minded person or a closed-minded person? But I think that when you ask that question, that everybody thinks they're an open-minded person, right? But like I, everybody thinks they're open-minded, right? And so with my liberal friends, I, I tell them, I watch a lot of Fox News, like, and they all say, and they all think they're open-minded. <laughs> and they say, well, why would you ever do that? I'm like, well, because it's not my tribe. And so I want to see how things, like I, I, I read a lot of stuff like that's outside of my own political commitments because I want to, I have a lot, I regularly discuss deep issues with people that deeply disagree with me because I think that, that that's the only way I learn. So, but I think there's a difference between being open-minded saying, oh, I want to be the open-minded person and actually what you do, but like, we're all like self-delusional, right? It's like, it's like when they do things, well, how often do you go to the gym or how often do you go to church or whatever? And people answer aspirationally, right? So the question is, do people really want to be open-minded or is that just the thing you say in Sunday school or at the Rotarian Club, or, or to, to, act, to think, to act like you're a good person, you know? Yeah, I think, but I think that's something that, you know, we have a society today that's telling people be close minded, be part of a tribe, let's have a war, hate the other guy. Yeah, and it's counterproductive. He's a loser, he's a sucker. You know, it's like, what? What happened to the friendly neighbor? I mean, I remember. What happened to, what happened to cooking the apple pie and, and walking over to the neighbor and saying hello? Yeah, I remember Evan By, who was a former senator of Indiana. His dad was governor of Indiana, but his dad was also senator from Indiana, who was a Democrat. And when decades ago, I mean, this has got to be in the sixties or fifty, whatever, when he yeah. when he announced that he was leaving the Senate as a Democrat to go run for governor of Indiana, he told he said his dad told him that several Republican senators embraced him and said, "If you need us to come campaign for you, let us know. We'll come do it." And like you can't imagine that today. I mean, like you, I mean that that that's unimaginable. But that it's a real story. But, but you know, here here's an interesting thing. I was writing I was writing a blog, and I I wrote I wrote this. I voted for Republicans and Democrats over the years. I have great admiration for Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan and Harry Truman, 
George H.W. Bush and Barack Obama, Dwight Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy, four Republicans and four Democrats. The party doesn't make the difference. The person does. And I, yeah. I think we have too many people voting for parties and not enough people having an open mind, looking at the people and voting for the person. Well, I mean, I hope your your tribe increases. And let me ask you this. I'm in the market for a new bike. <laughs> I don't have a bike right now and I need one. And I'm looking for like a fixed gear, single gear. Ooh. Uh, or, or I don't know. I'm in the city. I'm in, I'm in an yeah. urban area. It's all flat, basically. I'm not riding on yeah. hills. What would you recommend? I want something kind of, you know, lightweight. I, I don't need to shift gears very often or at all. Okay. Um, I would get like a Trek FX2, FX3, FX4, something in that range. That's a great bike, lightweight, great bike to ride in the city, great bike to go on the bike trails. That's an all-around bike. I'm, I'm Googling it right now. I'm looking on your website. Okay. Oh, this is a beautiful, the FX1. I see them all. Yeah. These are, bike. these are gorgeous bikes. So I'll tell you what, after we finish this interview, we should work out some kind of... I'll do a zillion free ads if you guys send me right. an FX bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you need an FX bike. We'll figure tell, that out. Hey, I'll tell you, John, this was really great. And I'll tell you, if you ever decide to run for president, let me know. I will campaign for you. Awesome. I will be. I'm going yeah. to put your name down. And if nobody has a plan or competency in 2024, I'll give you a call. Absolutely. Put me on. The, I'll be one of the first people. We'll go to Iowa and New Hampshire together and, you know. Go in those diners and, you know, and we'll just pass the, the book out. With the yeah. whiteboard and we'll, we'll go, hand out books. I'll hold the whiteboard and, and pass out books. And we'll say, here is, an, I am running for president and I actually have a plan. Wouldn't I love that be it. amazing? I love all it. All right. Thank hey, this you was so great. much for having me. Thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.